Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Messi quits international football. Spain is eliminated. Chile wins Copa America Centenario. Roy Hodgson and England capitulate. And the Icelandic national team officially becomes more iconic than Bjork. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Eurocopa Podcast. I am your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us tonight. In order to discuss all of these stories and much, much more, I am joined by Karthik Krishnayer, Gabe Smith, and Robert Hay Jr. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Let's start with Copa. Karthik, let's start with the with overall ideas on Copa, overall thoughts on Copa, uh, a tournament that we were looking forward to. Uh, I think it's important to note that the average attendance, uh, even though it, it's even though people are pointing out half-fell stadiums, but the average attendance has was forty-six thousand, twice as much as Chile average attendance in Chile last year. Uh, so, from that perspective, I think this bodes well for the popularity of the sport in America. Right, and because it was largely American audiences also. Very few people travel to this Copa. Uh, The thing about that attendance figure, though, I think has to be pointed out is those were spiked by messy games, U.S., Mexico, and Colombia. Colombia has a huge expat uh, community in the United States. So it was spiked by those four nations playing, and it it was brought down by – and and a few of the Brazil games. Mm -hmm. uh, It was brought down by everything else. So 46,000 is is an average, right? It was either upwards of 70 or more when Mexico, the U.S., Colombia – and Argentina played and down towards 15, 20, 25 when everyone else played. So, uh, and didn't play one of those four teams. That's, um, that's the reality of the attendance. And so what we see is that you can host a tournament in the United States without many traveling fans, which you can't say for many other countries in the world, honestly. Mm -hmm. However, there are still national teams, even good national teams that are not going to draw that well in the United States because they just don't have the number of expats here that some other countries do. But Colombia uh, does and they drew very well, for example. Yeah. Robert, one of the other things that we should discuss was the coverage by Fox. Um, now, Karthik made a wise decision, I think, halfway through the cup, uh, through the tournament. He switched over to Univision feed. Uh, which I think a lot of people should have done, but uh, there were some, still some positives <laughs> from the Fox. Uh, some positives from the Fox coverage. I think some of uh, the analysis was better than it has been previously. 
Uh, I think uh, Fernando Fiore was a good addition. And I don't say that just because of the fact that he's bilingual and therefore appealed to Spanish listeners. I think he brought uh, he brought a level of analysis that w- that bettered uh, the previous pundits, and I also think he brought some personality that I th- don't think uh, Alexi Lalas in particular has. So, tell me your thoughts on on the Fox coverage of Copa. Yeah, I agree. There was at times when I switched off the coverage because I just found it too insufferable, especially around the U.S. Uh, Argentina match. I mean, just the you know I screen captured the that picture of. You know, the predictions uh, and you see all the U.S. flags and that just to me just shows uh, I I just couldn't get past that. But, you know, I think there was a lot of positives. Well, not a lot. There were some positives with Mm -hmm. the coverage. Uh, As you know, I put on World Soccer Talk. You know, I thought Landon Donovan covering the match. Hey, that's how we roll. Um, I thought that his uh, I thought his analysis was actually good, surprisingly good in the U.S. game. Uh, I actually liked Allie Wagner um, a Hmm. a little bit. I think if she were used better um, and framed better by the studio uh, panel, she would shine more. She's got a good tactical sense that just wasn't used correctly by the the setup, Uh, but I thought she was very good, and I agree with you with a friend of yours. Good in terms Mm -hmm. of personality. He makes that personality and and, um, an analysis that uh, really livened it up a little bit. Although I think they relied on him a little too much at times when things were getting a little dry. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Rob Stone, I think, is underrated and and used incorrectly. But um, overall, it was okay. Um, It could have been better. I think what hurt them most was being up against ESPN at the same time and their superior soccer coverage. Absolutely. Uh, Gabe, uh, you and I talk about the growth of the sport stateside very often very often and uh i guess from my perspective the the excitement about <clears throat> excuse me this copa was somewhere between the the heights during the world cup uh the two years ago the excitement for the for soccer and the world cup was pretty high uh, stateside uh, based on you know radio shows and coverage and local newspapers and local radio stations and then there was the bottom out part which was the gold cup coverage which was basically none of it. I mean, no one really cared about the Gold Cup. So the so Copa kind of fell, fell in the middle of that. And I think in some ways that probably is the appropriate amount of attention it should have received, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and I think you have to you have to measure then some of the, the different variables that were involved in this. Uh, I mean, you have a, a Copa America tournament that is was really just kind of pieced together really in purpose of, of having it here in, in stateside, you know, having the hunt running. Uh, I mean, again, this is typically a tournament that runs every other year uh, and you have essentially it run then in consecutive years here uh, from the tournament being held last year. Um, you know, looking at it and kind of really focusing in on the dynamics of it, um, you know, you, you have the benefits of, of World Cup, uh, some of these other summer tournaments to where that is, you know, the only show uh, at that point in time, um, you know, kind of full focus. If you're really, you know, craving for some 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 great soccer, some great football action. Uh, your domestic league that you follow has has ended. Uh, you know, you're looking forward to that to that summer competition. Uh, you, you have to say that obviously that kind of factors in a little bit when you have a bit of a split probably in terms of some of the audience that that uh, was maybe a little more focused on European Championships. You had that kind of first uh, round of games. Uh, in the the group stage then uh, to where uh, European championships hadn't started as of yet. And so really the focus was on Copa America. But I, I think that uh, you, you have, you know, just some of the fans, especially here in the in the U.S. that follow 
um, you know, more European type players. Uh, I think a lot of them right. kind of put their, you know, they kind of switch over once European championships kind of started, uh, really kind of focusing storylines centered around that. Um, but you know, with those with those things factored in, I, I think that uh, the Copa America tournament did did great. You know, this was an exposure for U.S. fans that you know are, are typically used to a Concacaf tournament with Gold Cup, uh, to where you see kind of the, the same matchups over and over again. And you really, as a U.S. fan, you're you're big not not to not to uh, put down any other teams or anything like that. Obviously, you know, it's going to be different cycle to cycle. Uh, but you usually have U.S. fans looking towards that you know final or that goal is the to, uh, final against Mexico. Um, having this, you know, with uh, with South American teams involved, uh, gave an opportunity for uh, Americans to see then uh, their team play Colombia not once but twice. Uh, be able to see then, you know, uh, the likes of Argentina and see their, their their favorite U.S. players then on the same pitch as Lionel Messi. So uh, I think from that perspective, uh, this was this was you know there were certainly some some things that can be improved upon. Uh, overall, I thought it went pretty well, and I think the, the reception of it, uh, especially after some of the recent European Championship games, I, I've heard a lot of people who are a little more Eurocentric who have uh, definitely heralded the quality of Copa America this year. Yeah, and, and unless things change with the Argentine FA, it might be the last time the U.S. men's national team hmm. comes up against Messi. So that's a good point. Uh, Karthik, let's talk about the U.S. men's national team. Perfect transition from Gabe. I'm going to pick it up here. So... Third place uh, game against Colombia. Um, compared to the first game where the U.S. was comprehensively outplayed in the kickoff game of the tournament, I thought this was a very good performance. And even though they lost one nothing, uh, I thought it showed progress. Absolutely. Uh, whoa, whoa! I, I was, I was nervous. I was nervous. I was, I, I was convinced that, you were going to say something else. Go ahead. No, but <laughs> it just shows how silly and out of whack Jurgen Klinsmann and Jeff Cameron were after that first Columbia game, where the U.S. was mm. comprehensively beaten. And Robert yeah. uh, Nipun and I, we, 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 we commiserated after that match, right on this program, mm-hmm. yeah. about how poor the United States were. Uh, it just, just shows how absurd Klinsmann and Cameron were to go into the media and say, "Hey, we played them toe to toe. We, uh, uh, we, we were." Better for large portions of the game. No, they weren't. Yeah. They, they weren't mm-hmm. better except for small, isolated uh, parts of that match. I think on Saturday night, the U.S. was better than Colombia. Yeah, I agree. Columbia. I think they were better for large portions of this game. So that showed what the U.S. actually, a game where the U.S. was actually toe-to-toe with Colombia and and maybe outplayed Colombia looked like. Not the game uh, in Santa Clara on June mm-hmm. 3rd, but the game in Phoenix on June 25th. Uh, I thought it was a good performance. It was a very good performance, especially considering Johnson and Brooks were injured. And uh, it's unfortunate the U.S. didn't get uh, at least a a draw, or draw would take you to penalties. Uh, But uh, a good way to finish the tournament. I thought it was uh, a a fine performance. And I think actually going forward, Mm -hmm. um, with the exception of the 45 minutes against... uh, against Ecuador, the first 45 minutes against Ecuador, I think it was the U.S.'s best performance of the tournament because what I would argue about the Costa Rica game is that Costa Rica was the better team for large portions of that match. Things went against them, and then the game was very open. The U.S. got a bunch of goals. In the Paraguay game, I think uh, it was tough to judge. It was a very even game for most of the way. Uh, the U.S. got a goal, and then there was a sending off, so they had to play differently. I think this was the most fluid football yeah. the United States played in the entire tournament other than the first 45 minutes, or I'll say the first 50 minutes against uh, Ecuador before the the, the fisticuffs and, and the sending off of Jermaine Jones. So job well done. Uh, yeah. A loss, but a, a good performance. Robert, let's pick up on specific things I want to talk about because these have been discussed 
ad infinitum in the media, but uh, probably not in the most... Uh, uh, let me rephrase that. So a lot of these things have been discussed in the media with the lens of an analysis already generated, and they've retrofitted what they've seen in these games about this U.S. men's national team. First person to discuss is Michael Bradley. I have to put put my hands up. I have gone on mm. record as saying that he's, you know, the best player uh, in, uh, the U.S. has produced, that he's one of the best technical players in the U.S. men's national team, that he's a good leader. Uh, I've defended him to the hilt, but I can I did not see one good performance fr- from Michael Bradley in this tournament. Uh, and I include the wins uh, against uh, Costa Rica and Ecuador in, in, that, in that list. So what were your thoughts? It was almost as though Klinsman had to find an outlet in, in someone like uh, Jermaine Jones to offset what was a very subpar Michael Bradley all tournament. Yeah, I, as I tweeted after the match, uh, you know, this Michael Bradley was at best uh, mediocre in a lot of these games, and at worst was very poor. And I think that was a pretty telling statement for the U.S. I mean, as you said, this is a, a player that we all expected the U.S. to rely upon to provide quality in the midfield. Uh, we had he'd been given the the position that we all thought, you know, playing on the field where we thought he w- should play and where he was right. best suited to play. And what we saw was just mediocre play overall, bad turnovers at times, the inability to, to dominate a midfielder, at least, you know, boss a midfielder around. Um, it, it, the fact that he played not great and the U.S. played well, I think is, is interesting. Because right. um, that's that never happened with, before, so that's a very good point, yeah. It's been a while, and I think part of that was Jermaine Jones playing very well, playing out of his mind. But again, mm-hmm. with Jermaine Jones' age and penchant for uh, flaring up uh, and <laughs> getting cards, you know, you can't rely on that. So the question is, this is almost a, maybe I'm overstating this. This is a, a moment of truth for Michael Bradley. Is what he's doing good enough if he wants to be that kind of world-class player on the international stage? Or it, was this just a one-off? Was this just mm-hmm. a bad tournament? Something else is going on. He's in the middle of an MLS season. He's tired, whatever, and he'll be better for the World Cup. Or does he need to think about uh, maybe uh, you know, going with a coach, moving overseas, doing something else? I mean, is this good enough for him? He's still got time to improve and become a better player. And the U.S. does need him to be better. But uh, that time isn't going to last forever. So it'd be interesting to see what he does over the next uh, two years prior to the World Cup. Yeah, Michael Bradley will be captain, I'm sure, in the in the 2018 World Cup. And uh, another player that we should discuss, Gabe, is DeAndre Yedlin. Uh, I don't want to go on my rant about how I don't think he's a <laughs> defender because I've made that clear many times on this podcast. What I do want to ask you is, is there a feasible way where you can get the best out of Yedlin by either changing the formation to... Because I think he's a very, very talented player. So... Uh, either changing the formation to give him a fullback role as opposed to a flat back four, or even consider uh, doing the reverse of what uh, the U.S. men's national team has done with midfielders and actually switch him from defense to an advanced midfield role to give him a more attacking uh, position. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's definitely you know worth experimenting more, and and I I'm surprised that uh, Jurgen, the experimenter Klinsman, hasn't really, <laughs> you know, really 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 dabbled this in much with with DeAndre DeAndre Yedlin uh, specifically. Um, I, I I think that when you when you look at it, you know, we we certainly have to change our mindset to the modern day fullback. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the amount of defense responsibility has been tied to that. Uh, seems to be dwindling, or at least not necessarily responsibility, but I think the focus and what and how we evaluate the qualities and skills of a fullback 
Uh, I, I think that just in in the 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 age of attacking threats and and overlapping fullbacks, uh, sometimes uh, I, I hear people um, you know congratulate then certain players more for their attacking ability than their defensive qualities uh, when it comes to that specific position. So I, it is certainly a little bit unique. I think from uh, from some of the other positions on the field. Um, with that being said, you know I've I've had some of my own concerns. Uh, you know, you, you have him a player with that kind of speed. Uh, certainly from a defensive end, uh, work out well in terms of recovery speed. Right. Well, the problem is, is that typically in that scenario, it's because he got beat before, right? right. And, and exactly. you know, when you when you have then someone that is so reliant on their speed, especially in a position where they're you know, again they're playing defensively, uh, I, I think that can sometimes be a crutch to where you don't get then some of the development and progression uh, in other key areas in in uh, positioning awareness uh, and and being able to uh, you know truly evaluate and visualize then you know where the play is going to develop from attackers uh, and, and make sure that you're in a good spot then to prevent uh, not even needing to necessarily tackle just get a good interception at that point I think those are those are all elements that Yellen definitely needs to improve upon if this is really going to be his position moving forward getting back to your original point I, I personally uh, just because you know when you when you are obviously tinkering with the formation I, I don't like the idea of you know, if if you want to tinker the formation because it's best for the overall team, great. But I don't see tinkering the whole entire team formation mm. just to accommodate Yedlin in yeah. this case. So, so looking at it from the other perspective, I, I do like your thought in in regards to uh, maybe playing him high up the field. I mean, at his age, the the book should not be closed on what position he should ultimately be playing. And and again, while while with the with club. Uh, whether it be back with Spurs or if you know if Sunderland come back in again, you know wherever they play him, that's perfectly fine. But I think that you know Klinsman or whoever uh, is a manager for U.S. moving forward uh, should still definitely evaluate um, you know his strengths and his weaknesses and, and make sure that you know we, we do identify the best position, which which I do kind of think could be higher up the pitch at this point. Yeah. Karthik, last question about the U.S. men's national team directed at you. We got a question on Twitter from Adam Fatah, and he asked, can the U.S. Can USA get an invite to the 2019 Copa tournament? Yes, they can get an invite. In fact, the U.S. has been invited, was invited to several Copas that they declined invitations to. Because uh, there, right, there are two spots available for outside right. of CONMEBOL, right? Correct. Yeah. And then after the United States sent a B-minus slash C-plus team, we could call it in the 2007 Copa. Uh, the the invitation was yanked for 2011 and 2015, and given to Japan and Jamaica respectively. So, if if Sunil Gulati is willing to send a better team down to um, to South America for the 2019 World Cup, uh, excuse me, 2019 Copa America, I think they they would give the United States that that uh, extra invitation, mm-hmm. that outside uh, invitation. Mexico gets one every time. That's that's Team Eleven, and then there's a Team Twelve. It was mm-hmm. Jamaica in 2015. And as I said, the preference for Common Ball for years was to have the United States. And then when the United States disrespected the tournament mm-hmm. by sending that set of that set of guys, and if you want to look up that team uh, online, you can look it up. Some of those guys ended up being regulars with the U.S. Many years later, uh, many of them just faded away that were on that team. Uh, there mm-hmm. were one or two regulars uh, that went down. Eddie Johnson and Taylor Twelman come to mind, but other than that, very few guys. Uh, I will point out that. 
the reason this has happened is because of Major League Soccer. The U.S. was competing in the Copa America before the initiation of Major League Soccer. You heard time and again during this tournament that in 1995, the United States had made the semifinals of Copa America. That was the year before MLS began. Because Copa America is a summer tournament and the United States plays in the summer, Mm -hmm. uh, the United States leagues, all three professional leagues and Major League Soccer being primary among them, the U.S. started declining invitations to the Copa America. And then when finally they decided to accept one, they sent a a B team. So that is really the issue. So Neil Galati will have to sit down with uh, Don Garber, uh, Adam, and make a decision. And I think a lot, he needs to go to Garber and say, Hey, this was great high level experience for our team. It, it hardened our team. It, it hardened our tactics. We don't get this kind of competition in CONCACAF. We're at a real tipping point with this program because soccer is more popular than it's ever been in this country. Yet the national team, you could argue is no better than it was 20 years ago. So we need to go to this tournament. You guys are two weeks or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think that conversation is going to have to be had. Karthik, for someone that gets paid by MLS, you sure do criticize them a lot. It's really surprising. <laughs> right. You're right. That's the, uh, that's the mantra from some uh, NASL fans. Of course, MLS fans accuse me of being paid by NASL. Right. I can assure our listeners I'm not being paid by either entity currently. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying, Karthik. Uh, let's, let's, uh, before we switch to talking about Argentina, I really want to inform our listeners about our sponsor, SeatGeek. Uh, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long, long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for the game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier for fans to buy and sell tickets. For example, I am very interested in the Real Madrid versus uh, Paris Saint-Germain game uh, in Columbus, Ohio on July 27th, and I've been looking at tickets on my SeatGeek app, and the prices I've been seeing quoted are uh, definitely much better than a lot of other competitive sites. Uh, and the, the reason that's cool is because SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensures that you get the best possible deal. SeatGeek does all the work and you save time and money. So, and the best of all my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, Number one, you download the SeatGeek app. Number two, you go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Number three, you enter promo code WSTPOD and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So gentlemen, go ahead, download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WSTPOD today. Robert, let's talk about Argentina. Uh, we'll get to the messy question a little bit later, but we have to talk about the final. Uh, Argentina goes out, uh, loses to Chile in the final yet again, uh, similar th- way that things played out last year, just a year ago in Copa. Uh, it was a poorly officiated game and there are a lot of intangibles, but I cannot help but ask you here, ask you a question that I think a lot of people were afraid to ask. Did the dark arts win out with what Chile did to Argentina? Have we have <laughs> has this been another example? Of, let's look at Atletico Madrid. Let's look at Chelsea last season. Let's look at uh, look at uh, maybe even Italy falls in. Did the dark arts quote unquote win out in this final? Um, no. I, I you know maybe I'm naive. I think that's a little harsh. Um, I do think Chile was uh, 
let's say, aggressive. That might be putting it lightly <laughs> in this final towards Argentina. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of that, especially towards the first half, had to do with officiating getting out of control. Listen, right. um, officials have a, a large role to play in any sporting event. And one of the best things an official can do is controlling the game. It's not something you can necessarily learn by reading a book. It's, it's more of an experience thing and experiencing with, uh, you know, high level players. And this is true of any sport. And I think what we saw in the match was a total lack, a loss of control in this match. Um, it, you know, it, it, basically what happened is some tackles got dirty uh, you had a, a you know, man sent off, and as soon as that happened, you know it, it started to look like uh, when was it going to go ten v ten, and the players knew it, the referee knew it, and it just led to a series of bad decisions. So I think that it's interesting. The first ten minutes of this match, I thought, were incredibly good for footwork, for passing. I almost woke my daughter up so she could watch it, so she could learn how to to do some of these moves. Uh, mm-hmm for her own soccer team. And I actually thought this was going to be a really good match. And then everything kind of descended into this ugliness. So for a brief moment, I think there was this opportunity for a beautiful game. And then it just, it just spiraled into madness. And then by the time the second half rolled around and things calmed down, it was just, it's, it's too late and too tight to, to worry about that. Yeah, Gabe, it wasn't just the tackles. It was a lot of diving. There was a lot of rolling Mm -hmm. around on the ground, a lot of time wasting. And from that perspective, I think it might've turned off, uh, some of uh, some some average, uh, not even average. I, I count myself in this. I, I found myself gravitating more and more towards Game of Thrones as, as the game progressed. Uh, but in general, it was also a ta- interesting game to watch tactically because with all the brilliance Argentina had, we saw the likes of Messi and and players that we've mentioned hundreds of times before on this podcast pretty much nullified by a very strong, as Robert put it, aggressive. Uh, unit, but also a very well-organized Chile unit. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just there was there was so much about this match that was so reminiscent to the Copa America final last year, uh, where you had these exact same teams um, draw out a zero-zero, you know, um, uh, match. Then that that also led to, to penalties. And you, you have to say that at this point in time, looking at this as well as the uh, the World Cup qualifiers, uh, obviously with these two teams uh, sharing the same uh, qualification group as right. well, that you know it really looks like Chile's got Argentina's number, or that they have a good idea going into the match what they're going to do. And um, you know, I, I I I hate just kind of saying this because I, I think it does minimize you know what Argentina has been able to do in this tournament because they they really looked great at at, at um, uh, large moments of, of throughout the the Copa America tournament. But you know, it, it's easy to associate then Argentina as as kind of a, a team of individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least for this comparison with Chile, I think it holds strong. When you when you look at then some of the individual characteristics and this kind of reliance, I think from Argentina. Uh, to when the when the game calls for it, have someone step up. Uh, generally, it could be messy, you know, in that case. But but somebody somebody from the team step up, uh, you know, have done so through the course of the tournament. Um, maybe not necessarily as pressure filled uh, through some of the, the the matches. They've 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 gone either out to an early lead, uh, had a couple goals then in terms of difference. So we haven't really been able to measure Argentina then with, with pressure directly on them um, as we did see in this in this final. And and that has been one of the kind of ongoing uh, complaints either that Messi doesn't doesn't put on the same type of performances uh, for Argentina as he does for Barcelona or we get then kind of the Higuain choke artist 
uh, you know, type uh, type sayings then that, that that repeat quite often. Um, you know, this this started kind of rearing itself, and, and you could see psychologically, I think that getting on the players. Uh, that all said, I, I think that focusing so much just on Arsenal's downfalls obviously is a disservice to Chile. Uh, did a, a great job, great team effort. Uh, I, I love. The, the high pressure that you saw from that team. I think if, you know, if Robert was talking about in terms of kind of educating his kid, there was some of the play. You know, if, if anybody's looking for uh, a great system running then that high pressure defense, that would have been a great match to look at. Certainly frustrated Argentina, uh, very well disciplined in terms of defense. And, and you could really tell just the way that they were going about their attacks, uh, the way that they were going about possession. Uh, there in general, that they kind of had a, a game plan going into this. They, they weren't going to outscore Argentina. Uh, they probably even knew that they may not uh, beat then Argentina in a full 90 minutes, uh, and that if it was just maybe a set-piece goal that, that you know came in the, the first 90 minutes, that would have been great. But I, I'm sure a lot of their focus then was on the fact that they may eventually actually go to penalties, and it mm-hmm. looked like they were also well-prepared for that eventuality as well. Karthik, this Argentina team is filled with winners where we talk about Messi we talk about Di Maria who's won a Champions League he's won uh, leagues everywhere in the world whether it was Argentina Spain now France uh, Nicolas Otamendi someone you know from City I mean we can go through this team and talk about winners at every single position Sergio Aguero again someone I forgot to mention now when you look at the fact that this Argentina team has lost lost three finals in three consecutive years one World Cup, two Copa Americas. This is Messi's fourth lost final. He also lost in 2004. But tell me, is this a statistical anomaly with Argentina? Or is there a real issue with with the, with the self-belief of this team? Because under different managers, under different uh, tactical systems, they tend to come up just short in the final. They're coming up just short now. They weren't coming up just short for a long time, so uh, I, I think it's uh, it's a bit of a coincidence. It's coming up against a better opposition. Germany was a better team than them in 2014. Yeah. I think Chile. Look, Chile hosted the last Copa. They were at home, and last night it was a very even match. I mean, I think uh, uh, Chile is one of the most talented national teams on, on the planet. I mean, I look at the Euros since we're going to talk transition to the Euros in a minute. The only team I think clearly in the European championships that's more talented than Chile is Belgium. I'm not sure Germany is. I'm not sure Italy is. I'm not sure Spain is. I'm not sure France is. They, they, France and Germany probably are, but I'm not positive they are. You mean I don't player for player or, or, or you mean tactically? Because I would say player for player. I think Argentina is more talented than Chile. I think Belgium is more talented oh, than Chile. Oh, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I'm saying the only team player for player – for me, certainly better. The only national teams that are are, are, are definitely player for player better, in my opinion, than Chile uh, in world football right now are Belgium and Argentina. That's it. Mm, okay. um, now, you could argue Germany might be better. You could argue France might be better. I don't think Italy's better. I don't think Spain's better, mm. player for player. Mm. So you got two national teams, Belgium and Argentina, both of Noticed whom... Noticed you, you skipped England, but I let it slide. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, pure mistake. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, for Argentines lamenting today, you could be English. Yeah, right? that's true. That's true. <laughs> no, but I don't think there's a whole lot. There's a big gap between Chile and Argentina, and Argentina's just yep. come up against them twice. Yeah. Uh, it's it's bad luck. I don't. Yep. I, I think this narrative that they're somehow losers yep. is crazy. Yeah. For years and years and years, Argentina was underperforming in, in, in international tournaments. That changed in World Cup 2014. This isn't the Argentina team that was eliminated at the group stage in the World Cup in 2002. This isn't the Argentina team that looked very meek in getting run off the pitch in the Copa final in 2007 by a Brazil team that was not even a complete A Brazil team in that Copa in Venezuela. This is not the same Argentina team that got beat 4-0 by Germany. Could have been 8-0 that game in, right. in World Cup 2010. This is a stronger version of Argentina. I don't like the narrative that's out there. I think they're just getting unlucky and they've come up against Chile twice. Now, if Chile somehow had been beaten in this Copa uh, by uh, Colombia or well, Mexico was 7-0 to them, but it somehow not made it, they would have won the Copa. There's no one else in the in the tournament that could that could go toe to toe with them. Uh, so it, it's just a little bit of bad luck, honestly. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Karthik, last question about Argentina. I'm going to stick with you. Uh, the Messi retirement thing. I think pretty much everyone is kind of on the same boat in the same boat that he'll take a break, but he will come back for the World Cup. So we'll skip that. But the Argentina FA situation. Tell me your thoughts on that right now. We had Sam Kelly talk to us about it in one of our daily pods. Uh, but that situation with the with FIFA taking over is is something that is very toxic. And in the preview pods, we wondered if it would affect the on-field performance of Argentina. With the tournament over, where does the Argentine FA go from here? Uh, they're in... <laughs> I, I don't know where they go from here. They, they, it, it seems uh, it's a crisis moment. And the players got to the final of this major tournament in spite of that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, some uh, weaker-willed players would have wilted. I mean, can you imagine if this was going on in the English FA? <laughs> England wouldn't have been even able to get off the team bus, <laughs> let, alone, let alone actually perform, right? right. Uh, I'll talk about mental, mental fragility. Yeah, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I, I, I can't speculate. I have to just tell you this is about as bad – a crisis as we've seen in recent years at a high-profile footballing nation in the governance of their game. Mm. Uh, it's that serious. And uh, I, I'd love to hear Sam Kelly and Juan Arango's views on it a, a little further. I think uh, now that the tournament's over, we're going to be focusing on this, and, and it's not good. Robert, let's get into the European Championships. And the way we will discuss th- these games, gentlemen, is I will uh, mention the, the upcoming quarterfinal matchup, and then we'll talk about the games that those teams have uh, just won in order to get to the quarterfinal. So, Robert, let's start with Poland versus Portugal. Uh, Poland beats Switzerland on PKs uh, with, with Arsenal's new signing, Shaka, missing the PK to send Lewandowski's side through. Uh, it also involved was probably the goal of the tournament so far with the Shakiri uh, mm-hmm. uh, overhead kick, which actually reminded me of the Rivaldo overhead kick from Barcelona from, like, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, so, yeah, talk to me about that po- uh, the Poland uh, uh, win over Switzerland. Yeah, be, be, with that penalty miss and then uh, Alexis Sanchez uh, with a bum ankle, this has been a great weekend for Arsenal fans, no <laughs> doubt about that. Optimism <laughs> for the upcoming season. Um, and Oldsil missed the penalty too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Gabby Gold cannot come soon enough. Um, <laughs> you know, this was, this was a, you know, this is an interesting match. Um, considering what else happened that day, uh, the, this match kind of it kind of laid the pace uh, for the day of soccer. Um, you know, I, I think that Poland again. Um, you know, I, I can't really figure them out. I know that's probably a bad thing to say when you're analyzing a game, 
um, and how they're able to win. Yeah, I guess it's some intangible that uh, I probably maybe somebody else can um, can bring up. But you know, Switzerland I thought had a nice little. They looked like they were they had the advantage at the end of this match. Um, that security goal was just amazing, and you know, it seemed like they were going to steal this match, and then you know, Poland holds on. Um, I think that if Lewandowski ever shows up from witness protection, um, <laughs> this this team is going to be really interesting. Um, but otherwise, is uh, this? I, I really it's having a hard time getting excited about this Poland Portugal match. I'll just leave it at that. And I think the reason it's so difficult for you to get excited about this Poland Portugal match, Gabe, is because we watched one of the most. Boring games of football between Portugal and Croatia. Uh, I remember literally feeling like I should stab myself in the neck when it went to extra time. Uh, And then the little excitement I had in my mind was that, okay, it'll go to PKs. Even that was taken away from me when (laughs) Koresma scored in, what, three, four minutes to go. Uh, So let me ask you this, Gabe. For me, I I think Poland will actually beat, has the beating of Portugal. I know they've been reliant on Blaszczykowski and, and Lewandowski has underperformed, but actually uh, edge, uh, give edge, uh, the edge to Poland in this game. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, uh, I would definitely do that as well. I, I think that was, you know, the, the, you're just kind of, as you, as you kind of set that up, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I fully, fully agree in, in that, you know, this match, you know, outside um, of the the Italy Spain matchup, uh, this was the the matchup then that I was looking forward to the most. Uh, I just thought that there was you know enough enough big name players and personalities in here uh, that it should make it for uh, what I was hoping for was a, a slugfest in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, two two defenses that aren't necessarily uh, at the top of their top of their level. Um, so I, I thought that there was going to definitely be some goals in this one, and, <laughs> and I was completely wrong on that. Um, you know, I, I was certainly shocked by by Croatia. Uh, in the case, I just they just really never were able to put it towards Portugal. I think some of the nerves got to them, or um, really just trying to play uh, a match without making mistakes. And, and obviously, if you go into to that with you, you know, with into a match with that being your mindset, um, you know, you're going to be in some trouble. Uh, Portugal is is interesting here because you have you have some you know some some interesting elements to this team. Uh, you have a very young midfield, and I think that's what's been probably the root of kind of the inconsistencies or, or just the, the lack of, of real chemistry uh, for this Portugal squad uh, because you, you've, you've seen so far uh, some interchanging uh, in that midfield position. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think that uh, uh, William Carvalho has probably been the standout there, um, mm-hmm. has you know provided a, a little bit more steel uh, in that midfield, whereas more of the other components then, um, you know, are going to try to play that playmaker role uh, I, I, I think that the absence of Moutinho was noticeable uh, in that match against Croatia. I, I would I would probably uh, bet on seeing him being inserted back into the lineup then uh, against Poland. Yeah. But the 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 forward dynamics I think is is the one that's the most interesting. I mean, you have you know you really can't put a label on Ronaldo in terms of his position. Um, you know, given an opportunity, whether he's playing then out in the wing. Or as a central striker, it's not necessarily my concern there, uh, but it is with Nani. Um, I, I think you're you're losing some of the elements that that Nani can serve best. 
uh, by having those two as, as kind of playing dual strikers. Um, I, I think it's a little bit too late to, to really in this tournament start tinkering around and and uh, and, and trying to get a, a different dynamic out. Um, you know, if you're uh, Fernando Santos, the, the manager of Portugal, uh, but it, it's it, I just don't see. I haven't seen enough through this tournament to where I think that, as Robert pointed out, probably the one real missing piece for for Poland, they've been able to to, to really um, edge games out. I think that game against Germany, uh, they tactically played Germany uh, quite well, and so they have that they have that in their arsenal. But if it does get to where Ronaldo gets you know in his head like he did against Hungary, to where he needs to carry this team on his back and starts doing everything he can to get the ball in the back of the net. I'm not sure if Poland is able then to turn the switch on to get the kind of firepower unless Lewandowski just suddenly turns it on. So that's going to be, I think, the, the, the big area to, to watch. Uh, but again, with some of the vulnerabilities there that Portugal can show on defense, uh, I still do consider Poland as a favorites here. Yeah, Nani's an interesting one. Uh, Karthik and I were talking about it last episode, and uh, it's strange. He's he's playing that forward role. He it's not a, he's not played central striker too often, but he's mm-hmm. also been Portugal's most productive player because he's scored two goals. He was involved. Uh, he, he played the through pass to Cristiano, which was then play, uh, scored by Quaresma. So he's been their most productive player, more so than Cristiano, even I would argue. Uh, but your point is well taken. It does take away from some of the other areas, and one of those areas, Karthik. That I, for, for me, I don't understand is when I watch Renato Sanchez play in this Portugal lineup, uh, I cannot understand why he is not starting. Because if Renato Sanchez starts alongside Will Carvalho, who, who Gabe mentioned, I think that is a perfect holding midfielder combined with a, a box-to-box midfielder in Renato Sanchez who drives the play, who carries the ball, who plays that Arturo Vidal role. So I do not understand why he's not starting. Yeah, I think João Matinho is still a preferred choice because the thinking is he can link the play better. But mm. uh, uh, Santos and, and our colleague Morgan Green can talk talk, talk to this because he, uh, he he managed Greece, obviously, in the last two major tournaments and, and did fantastically well tactically with Greece, making the right substitutions. The team's getting stronger as the tournament went on. Greece started both uh, Euro 2012 and World Cup 2014 very poorly and then got stronger as those tournaments went on. And were quite frankly, you, you, they ran into good teams in both those tournaments. They in the knockout stages, but they played very well and could, could have moved on. They could have kept going, and, and we're seeing that again with Portugal. He tends to make these sorts of changes as tournaments wear on. We saw that with Greece, and we're seeing it now with Sanchez. Last two matches, he's brought Moutinho off uh, at halftime or, or shortly thereafter. In this case. Um, about three minutes after halftime in this match, in, in, in this Croatia match. And the game has changed. The game has been opened up. It's been stretched. And Sanchez has excelled. I think there's still a hesitation at his age, hmm. to, whether he can go 90 or 120 minutes fitness-wise. And I think there's also a hesitation as to whether tactically from the get-go uh, in a game which is very tight and, 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 and isn't stretched, how, how much of a difference he can make. That's why I think he's coming off the bench. But uh, he's been fantastic. Uh, he changed that game against Hungary, which got them through to this point, uh, got them through the, the group stages, and then uh, uh, getting that draw, uh, that uh, coming back three times in that game, right? Hungary yeah. led three times. They came back three times and drew. And then now in this Croatia game, I think he made all the difference in, in getting them past uh, what was prior to that game, one of the uh, top two or three teams in the tournament, along with Italy and uh, – yeah, along with Italy, probably one of the top two teams in the tournament. <laughs> yeah. Robert, we saw uh, what is right now 
the only team left in the mix uh, from I don't even, I don't even know what to call it anymore. It's it's Britain kind of <laughs> what was Britain. the British Isles, the British Isles, uh, not the United Kingdom anymore, kind of. Uh, thank you Brexit. <laughs> uh, so so we saw we saw Wales uh, go through in in uh, uh, in somewhat uh, heartbreaking fashion with that own goal by Macaulay. It, it ended. Uh, it was an even game, but really was decided by. Uh, uh, a moment of brilliance from Bale, and I think that that might be a little bit of hyperbole. A very good cross by Bale that was uh, that Macaulay had really no option but to try to clear, and unfortunately it went to the into the uh, into his own net. But at the end of the day, I think it's accurate to summarize that when Bale comes up against Belgium, it'll be a matchup of two teams that are different in the sense that one team has one brilliant player and a and a good tactical setup, and the other team. Uh, has a ton of brilliant players, but almost no tactical setup. Yeah, the first touch on this uh, Wales-Northern Ireland match, uh, you're right. I mean, that was just, as the uh, broadcast crew was saying during this uh, match, there's, there's not much you can do with a cross like that. Yeah. Uh, it's, if it goes through, it's a goal. If you, if you just got to put your foot on it if you're a defender and hope that it goes over. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this was kind of a, it was kind of a, a two teams playing a little nervously. Feeling, I think, a little bit of pressure of this game, and, and that's why they, they, it wasn't overall the kind of quality we're seeing in other matches. But um, it was, you know, Wales' style of game, and they came out with the result. Um, and going forward, um, you're right, I think. It's an interesting matchup between the two. And what worries me a little bit about this match, if I'm a Belgian fan, which I'm not, uh, but if I was, <laughs> what would worry me a little bit would... Um, you you know Wales is in no way Italy. Let's let's not kid ourselves here. There's there's a definite drop off in quality overall. Um, but if Wales can maintain its defensive shape, and I believe I saw Ashley Williams is healthy ish. Yes, yes. He for is. this match, we'll I, you know we'll see how really healthy he is. But they're mm-hmm. saying he's healthy. Um, you know you're you're going to face a pretty good uh, Welsh defense here, and you know if, if Belgium has trouble breaking through. And Gareth Bale gets a chance to to do some magic. Aaron Ramsey gets some space. Um, it, it, this could be a really nervy match for Belgium. I, I, you know, Belgium should win this match based on talent and based on this is their moment, yada, yada, yada. But I think this is a bad matchup for him. This could be an interesting match, no doubt about that. Gabe, you are a Belgium fan, so let's, let's talk <laughs> okay, to you. Like, here we go, segue, perfect segue. I yeah. Robert even knew they were segueing like that. So exactly. So <laughs> of course you, I was. <laughs> you, you watched Belgium produce their best performance in recent memory in that in that win against Hungary, uh, led by uh, someone who we have pretty much written off. We had written off for most of the season, which is uh, someone named Eden Hazard. Um, had a very good game. A, a good team performance in the sense that there were moments where there was some very good passing, very crisp passing, some good interplay. Uh, but there are still, in my opinion, there are still gaps in that midfield. There are still areas that Wales can look to look to look to exploit. So, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think it's um, you know Robert made some great points. Um, if you're if you're looking at uh, some of the the teams there in the quarterfinals, uh, you know who could could be able to uh, probably cause the most threat. Um, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily as worried then of a team that's going to be playing some attacking football that might leave some things open. Uh, it's going to be a more condensed, defensive, tactically disciplined side. 
Um, you know, certainly wouldn't want to play Italy again at this point. Um, <laughs> and 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 you know, Wales definitely fits that bill. Um, I, I think that the the key here for for Belgium is that this match against Hungary might have come at the perfect time than going into that match against Wales. Certainly, uh, just psychologically with the confidence, uh, kind of getting that up. Uh, but this team is, uh, I think, it can be unstoppable when you do have Hazard then uh, playing um, at his very best. And, you know, this is a player that, you know, can go missing uh, for periods of time. Uh, Correction, and, and has it, gone missing for a has long gone time. Missing, definitely. I, I mean, yeah. it, it was actually, it was funny to, for, for me, that goal uh, that he scored really was almost like a flashback of the Chelsea versus Spurs game. Right. And, and, you know, you kind of have uh, this dynamic right, yeah. where, you know, he's had a poor season, the whole entire season. And, and then, you know, when the, when, you know, Spurs, you know, couldn't couldn't have anything related to a hazard moment like that. You know, there it comes. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's certainly capable of that I think he's one of the few players that on this Belgium squad um, that can pretty much do everything than himself, if need be, in terms of calling upon that. De Bruyne, uh, one of my favorite players on this squad by far and away, uh, but I think his best attributes that you see from there is his uh, creating potential and, and his ability then to set up others. Um, it would have been, I think in my mind, interesting to see what the scoreline could have been um, had maybe then Barashiwi uh, actually played the full game as opposed to Lukaku because Barashiwi was doing a much better job of getting inside the box and trying to get on the end than of some of those great crosses that De Bruyne was putting in, pretty much the full match. Yeah. And, and I think when looking at this Wales, uh, this matchup then with, with Wales, uh, I think that is going to be the one area that Belgium can really tap into. I, I think that the center of the park is just going to be so congested. There's going to be so much uh, in terms of Wales having then those, those solid blocks uh, in there right in front of that, that back three that I, I just don't see then as much any opportunity as much opportunities for Belgium to, to really unlock it uh, playing centrally. I, I think the key for them is definitely going to be in the wing areas. I think that De Bruyne is going to be key uh, in that particular area uh, of the pitch. Uh, and if you can put in some of those crosses, and I think if, if Vilmots can get then uh, the striker choice right for this particular match, because you know he does have a wealth of options, uh, and, and it seemed to be that each player has kind of had their match to where they've they've played a little bit better in and hasn't really found much consistency uh, from that position so far. So I would probably venture to guess you, you probably won't see Lukaku in this. Um, mm. You might because he does sometimes he does kind of rely on on Lukaku, but I think he might have seen enough then from from Barashuyi that he might uh, actually start with uh, with him for this match, uh, which might might be a surprise to some and it might catch uh, Wales a little bit off guard. Yeah, Batshuayi really was a revelation in, in, in that role when he came on. Karthik, step away from Wales and Belgium. I want to talk to you very briefly about Hungary because I just feel a little bit for Hungary. In, in our preview, we talked about how the historical Hungary, uh, you know, was were one of the innovators of football in the 40s and 50s and 60s with the magnificent Magyars and, and that uh, brilliant team. And I feel for some of these players, it's the end of what was somewhat of a golden generation because these players did not qualify for the World Cup and it'll hurt their current batch of players because there's a lot in that group, uh, other than the ones that are 35, 37 years old, there's a lot in the group that's 22, 23 years old and it's going to hurt their development to miss out on the next World Cup. 
Yeah, I, I, I think uh, obviously they've got a, uh, a situation where they had been in footballing wilderness for a long time, right? Right. And yeah. this is just one of the great footballing nations. We went through it in the uh, in, in in this. Uh, in our preview pods, but uh, mm-hmm. this was a real uh, encouraging uh, uh, a tournament for them, and they were very yeah. good. They kept the ball well. Possession was quite good, and obviously, when you look at at uh, World Cup qualifying, uh, they've they've got an opportunity to to uh, to qualify. They're in a in a group which includes Portugal. Uh, Portugal always seems to qualify for major tournaments, but Switzerland are hit or miss, as we've seen again in this tournament, and. Uh, not really a whole lot else. So they have an opportunity maybe to finish second in that group and, and play into the World Cup. Now, as you said, they have a generation leaving uh, at this point, a number of older players. However, those players, like Zoltan Gera, a player we've watched for years, have gotten Hungarian football back to where they need to be to uh, to, to, to make a move going forward. So, I, and, I, and I thought for large periods of this game against Belgium, they were pretty good. They kept the yeah. ball well, and mm-hmm. Belgium got the early goal. Um, look, I mean, I, I think uh, if I can just say something about Belgium, I think Wales is very tactically disciplined. And mm-hmm. in Joe Allen and Aaron Ramsey, they, they they weren't quite as good in this game against Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland had a lot of set pieces, a lot of opportunities, probably the better team for 50 or 55 minutes in that game on Saturday. But Wales, uh, Wales now have had their bad game of the tournament, which was this game against Northern Ireland. They were clearly second best for, as I said, 50 or 55 minutes in the game. I think when you look at Wales's midfield, and, and Joe Ledley now is getting match fitness. And you have to account for the movement of a guy like Hal Robson-Kanu. That's how the goal was created, the own goal, uh, uh, unfortunate own goal by Macaulay. I, I think Wales, I think Belgium's going to have a lot of problems because they don't have uh, proper holding midfielders uh, to account for the, the k- kind of movement Aaron Ramsey makes. Uh, if When Robson-Kanu comes on for Vokes um, or, uh, late, late in the match uh, to, to, to account for what he does, uh, as that striker, and quite honestly, you're going to want to hope that you, uh, you're you able to negate the kind of balls that Joe Allen had been playing in this tournament. And, and I don't see anyone who's going to do that dirty work in the Belgian midfield. I, I, I mean, I suppose Belgium has so much talent that they're the favorite, but I mean, if I had a gun to my head, I would probably pick Pitt Wales to win this game and, and to go on to the semifinals. Hmm. Robert, let's talk about Germany versus Italy. Uh, Let's just summarize the Germany game win against Slovakia as a dominant game. Uh, they were dominating possession, chances created, could have been more than 3 nothing. Otsil could have had a hat-trick, uh, Mr. PK. Um, the goals came from Boateng, Mario Gomez, Draxler, boom. We summarized it. Move ahead to Italy and Spain, which is what we really want to talk about. We don't need about. to do an in-depth tactical breakdown of nope. the domination here? Nope. <laughs> because we we need to do an in-depth tactical breakdown of Italy beating Spain. Before we, start, before we started recording, Karthik and I talked about how there were similarities between this win for Italy over Spain and the win for Holland over Spain uh, which was kicked off the last World Cup, the 5-1 win, in the sense that Spain in both of these games had a better bunch of players, a more talented, technically gifted bunch of players, had historical, uh, had a strong historical backing in the tournament in both of these games. But Holland on that occasion outthought Spain, and today Conte's Italy outthought Spain. So talk to me about that. Yeah, you know, I think as we were talking about Italy going into this tournament, one of the things we mentioned was uh, Conte is just tactically a very good 
manager. I mean, with, with the, the basis of what you saw of modern Juventus, uh, I would give him a lot of credit for. Uh, and he's shown throughout his career the ability to uh, adapt his tactics to the players that he has and the situation in front of him. Um, so I, so what, you, what I thought going into this tournament was, yes, Italy does not have a lot of frontline sexy players up front. I mean, we, the defense is just beautiful, but you know, you, you don't have that striker right. that just is, you know, going to make everybody whatever. But the players that he has fits his system very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that Juventus, kind of that Juventus three-five-two, although it shifts, um, and the players move around. But what he did was, I think he took advantage of um, definitely some weaknesses Spain has, and, and I'll throw it out to you guys to go a little bit more into that in depth into that. But Antonio Conte might be one of the smartest, if not the yeah. smartest, manager in this tournament, and I mm-hmm. think that's scary because when you combine that with a defense that is can be dominant, and you know, it, it, it just enough talent up front to cause trouble, then this is a dangerous team. Uh, and I and I and they've shown so far. I mean, exactly that. That's that's their game plan. It's not necessarily beautiful, but it's very effective. Yeah. Um, you know, and one other thing that I like, sure. just want to throw out there, Insigne coming off the bench, I think mm-hmm. is going to make a difference at some point in this tournament. Mm-hmm. Gabe, Prediction we'll, time. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, break it down some more. But that, let me pick up on that point that Robert made. No Del Piero, no player like Roberto Baggio, no Francesco Totti, no Paolo Rossi, no uh, Gianfranco Zola, no Paolo, Inz- you know, no uh, Simone Inzaghi, no Pippo Inzaghi. Those strikers are what we used to know Italy for. This mm-hmm. team is very strong defensively. And of course, we knew them for Maldini, Nesta, etc. too. But those strikers really stood out. This team, as Robert pointed out, does not have that striker. They have Graziano Pelé, who, who has had a somewhat, un, somewhat unremarkable season for Southampton. Let's be honest. I think Mon, uh, Sadio Mane was the, the, the main uh, uh, attacking player for them, along with Tadic. So that's the guy they've been going with. They've been going with Adair. And yet, yeah. they've consistently been able to produce these performances where they are getting goals. Uh, where they are somehow creating lots of chances as well on the break. So talk to me about your thoughts on uh, expanding what Robert said. Well, you know, it, I mean, it really is for me. This is this has been the the biggest surprise um, then of the tournament. And and, I, you know, I, I think that some some initial reaction to that, that kind of statement would just be, oh, well, you know, look at, you know, look at, you know, Italy's history. Uh, there were certainly um you know, some some other than storylines. Obviously, we're going to probably get to it at some point here with 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 Iceland and then's performance. You have you know you have um, you know actual matches then in terms of particular surprises then from a, just one individual match. But in terms of performance through the course of the tournament, uh, Italy has been that for me. And and I think a lot of it has to do with some of the storylines coming into this. Right? You were you were mentioning in the striker line, and you were mentioning Adair. Um, I mean, I I think back to the controversy uh, that was had maybe it was be, maybe it was more so here in the United States, and, and, and maybe not as much in Italy then. Uh, but Giovanco's omission, right? Yeah, I mean, there was yeah, we talked about Sebastian Giovanco. Yeah, you know, yeah, there there were you know there were certain players that that missed out on this, and again, I think that there was this tendency for a lot of people to look at this squad and really questioned in the dynamic of it whether or not it was uh you know there was enough balance in there that it was you know very defensively heavy and and people you know it's not like Conte is just you know just kind of come from nowhere 
Uh, people were very aware of him, very aware of his tactics. Then coming from Juventus, uh, but even that became kind of a storyline because there were, you know, there were the talks of whether or not, you know, Conte was going to be able to go into this focused. Uh, you know, he had already taken over the Chelsea job. You know, yeah. was his focus looking at the transfer window and what he was going to be trying to do to, to you know, what kind of players he was going to try to get in. I, I mean, it, just from all those kind of factors involved, um, I, I think it, that Italy has put uh, a remarkable performance. Uh, throughout this tournament, and and uh, as has been noted, uh, Conte is easily uh, head above the rest when it comes to that that tactical battle that he's playing then with other managers. And I don't really I don't really see uh, an equal uh, through the rest of the tournament. I think that's what Italy has in its its back pocket, and I'm not too sure at this point in time if there's any other team right now uh, that can really unlock it in a certain way then to, to, to beat Italy uh, the way that his team is, is, is playing that they got the confidence at this point in time. Um, and what, what he's been able to do on, on the pitch um, especially with, I think just how he's utilizing every player's disposal uh, while it's certainly been, you know, quite uh Defensively minded, just trying to find the opportunities when he can. Uh, looking at today's match against Spain, uh, that set piece looked completely mm-hmm. planned. Yeah. You know, catch him off guard. Uh, I, I think then some of the movement that he's gotten from his players has been extraordinary. It, it really, I, I just, I see this, these kind of things then coming from a club team that has been able to spend week in, week out uh, on the training pitch. Uh, together as a solid unit, really knowing exactly where they are. So when you even break that down in, in terms of, or, or consider or factor that in, um, you know, in in how you know again with all those distractions, him putting together this team, uh, really only having so much time then to to really be able to lay this out coming into this tournament. I, I just I, I can't use enough then adjective to describe how impressed I am uh, so far by Italy and and, and Conte's performance. Yeah, Karthik, DeAndre Yedlin would be a revelation in this <laughs> system that that Conte plays. Okay, I'm kidding a little bit. But but the point I'm trying to raise is when Germany comes up against Italy, Germany, a team that we know has been playing uh, center backs uh, as fullbacks, they're going to come up against this 3-5-2 system where the fullbacks of, of Italy are in serious advanced positions. And yeah. <laughs> I cannot... Uh, for me, that is... A serious consideration for Germany. I really do believe if Jerky Lowe doesn't get his hand out of his pants, he might <laughs> actually uh, not have enough tactical nows to beat this Italy team. I know Germany's a better team, but I guarantee there will be at mm-hmm. least two chances created right, by that. They're all better teams. Yeah, so Belgium yeah, is uh, Belgium's the best team on paper in this tournament. Uh, they, they they beat them to a drum. Uh, they uh, today uh, Spain is a much better team than Italy on yeah. paper. They yeah, they beat yeah. the beat the tar out of them. They could have beaten mm-hmm. them five six nil. So uh, I I don't I don't hold that much hope for Germany unless they have uh, uh, some some tactical innovation uh, of their own because they. Um, they are limited, this Germany mm-hmm. team. This Germany team is the most limited German team we've seen in a major tournament since Euro 2004, which was, of course, a tournament they bombed out of at the group mm-hmm. stage. And, and uh, wisely, the whole rethink, the DAS reboot, as uh, Rafa Honigstein right. has termed it, uh, took place with Jurgen Klinsmann and others uh, after that. Uh, but they, they're at a low point in terms of talent. Mario Gomez is the, start, is the number nine for this team. Think about that. Right. The guy who got uh, just a handful of games at Fiorentina over the course of the last few seasons and is a player that um, 
he's on loan at Besiktas and has worked his way back into the team. I think the injury to Rudiger has hurt them. I think uh, Marco Royce's con- uh, continued injuries have hurt them. Mm-hmm. They don't have uh, uh, Gundogan. I think is a more dynamic player than Kadira at that point at this point in the mm-hmm. midfield. But Gundogan's not on this team because he's constantly hurting. He's fallen out of favor. I think they're very limited. Honestly, Germany, and yeah. it's hard. It's hard to believe we're saying that. Now, consider this. I mean, if you're thinking about Kadira and Cruz being guys that are going to uh, make an impact and be actually the engines in the room for Germany, I, I should I should take one thing back. I should say Mesut Ozil. I think has been very good in this tournament. He's still one German player that's still at a world class level. But I don't think and, and I'd say Tom. I'd say Müller is up there still. He. Not in this tournament. He is mm-hmm. up there still in, yeah. in reality for Bayern, but not in this tournament. He hasn't okay, been very fair, good in this yeah. tournament. But um, my, my concern is the way Pella and Eder are playing mm-hmm. as kind of these two strikers that tuck back into a midfield to make it almost a five-man midfield when they're defensively. And yeah. the more advanced players are the wingbacks. And uh, Italy is conceding a lot of space on, on, on in wide areas, which could be a con- concern because Kimmich now is playing right back for uh, – for Germany, an interesting change from Jürgen Lowe, and he he's he's pushing forward a lot, right? He's pushing right. forward a lot more than uh, Hovedis was when he was playing there, um, or Boateng when he's had to play right back at times. That that's one bit of concern, but I think that Kroos and uh, Kedira could be crowded out of this game when Eder and Pella come back with their defensive work rates, and then you've got the threat then of Eder on a counterattack. He's one of the quickest players in this tournament, quickest turn- player and probably not playing for Belgium and not named Gareth Bale, so <laughs> uh, or Nani. Uh, so so you've got I think all kinds of tactical potential problems for Germany uh, coming up, and and. Uh, I like Italy. I, I, the, the only concern I have about Italy is that they would have had to have beaten Belgium maybe twice to win this tournament. Mm. They've beaten Spain. They're going to have to beat Germany and probably have to beat France. That's a tough ask. That's, yeah, that that is. might be the toughest road to winning. And let's talk about start talking about this right now. That could be the toughest road ever to win a major tournament. I don't care about World Cups and previous mm. Euros and, and, and Copa Americas. No, if, if they win this tournament, they probably should get two trophies. Yeah. Robert, I think uh, one of the biggest criticisms we get about World Soccer Talk is we tend to get super nerdy. So I apologize for that massive tactical uh, conversation for the last 10 minutes. But this is what what we love. This is what we love to talk about. So let's talk about something less nerdy. Uh, Oh, first of all, let me me, uh, throw, throw it back to you, Robert, about this quote. I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Conte said, quote, I want my white players to come off the pitch spitting blood after an hour or so. I think that, that goes back to that, that wide wingback role where they're just bombing forward. So very quickly, your thoughts on that quote. Uh, I want his clarification. Whose blood are they spitting? <laughs> <laughs> well, Great Suarez response. isn't on the team. So oh, I don't that's true. Oh, yeah. no, no biting. Cellini <laughs> no has some experience with Suarez. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, all right, Robert. So uh, we had a question on the Twitters from Patrick De- mm-hmm. DeVitt. And he said, will or should Graziano Pelé be targeted by bigger clubs next season? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, he's on the wrong side of 30. Um, to to really be a, a stud prospect, so um, that makes it a little bit tougher. You know, I think he, he kind of slots in nicely as that kind of um, Premier League mid table with a chance to challenge higher kind of club that he's currently doing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's he's a good player. Um, 
nothing sexy that's going to, um, you know, thrill and, and thrill the fans that are looking for big money signings. So I think, I think he's kind of in the right place in his yeah. career. Um, so, I mean, could some of the bigger clubs use him as a option off the bench? Sure. But for his sake, I think, I think staying, staying in this, that kind of mold is a good one for him. Yeah. I think I agree with you. I think it's uh, similar to the, uh, Grant Holt thing with, with him moving, uh, to Liverpool. It just didn't really work out and it was in the wrong time of his career. I think he's a good fit for Southampton. Um, so yeah. Let me point out, uh, yep. this is this is part of Conte's genius for years, and Robert can attest to this. Robert's a great watcher, uh, admirer of Italian football. Uh, you, they wouldn't pick players. The managers wouldn't pick players that played extensively outside, outside of Italy. Area, yeah. Right. And Pella has played the majority of his professional career outside the country. This past season at Southampton was his eighth outside of Italy. Uh, he's played uh, six years in the Netherlands and, and, and two years now in England. So uh, he, he's a guy that had never even been considered for the national team before Conte got, became the manager. And you see a lot of those sorts of players in this team. He's just pieced together guys who can play a certain system and play a certain way. Uh, that's why Javinko isn't in this team. That's why Pirlo is not in this team. Uh, we're seeing guys that, uh, that, that makes sense. So I, I, and, and he's going, he's going outside the box. He's looking at what players are doing in foreign leagues. And, and, and I think it's, it's very impressive on his part. And, and this is why Chelsea fans should be super psyched. Uh, uh, you give them a couple transfer windows, uh, Brexit permitting, of course, uh, that's the big complication, but right. you give them a couple transfer windows. I think Chelsea's going to be very, very good and be a premier league title contender based on what we've seen with him, both at Juve at Siena at Juve. And now here, uh, Asterisks, though, Brexit permitting, uh, because Con- Conte may not be able to get the kinds of players he wants in- in- after this window for all the and, and the other uh, asterisk being the fact that the team will eventually implode uh, with him because he, he does he does have that Mourinho factor to him where, where there's a lot of stress on the players. And, uh, well, he runs them into the control. ground. I yeah. mean, that's I He's mean, it's very controlling. Mourinho, Mourinho uh, uh, goes into the press and, and, and campaigns against his players. I, I think... Uh, <laughs> uh, in the case of uh, Conte, he runs his players into the ground and players get sick of playing. How dare you, Karthik? Typical Man City bias, Karthik. <laughs> <laughs> for, for Chelsea fans out there, if you want to know what kind of manager he is, go read uh, Pirlo's uh, autobiography. And mm-hmm. he's got some very telling quotes, and that'll get you ready for, for right. his time as manager. Gabe, uh, uh, one last thing about uh, this game. We should talk about the postmortem of Spain. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the best teams in history. We'll go down as one of the best teams in history a World Cup, two uh, two European championships, uh, but that era is over. At the World Cup, Iniesta will be 35, Ramos will be 32, Juan Fran 33, Silva 32, Fabregas 31, Gerard Pique 31, uh, Pedro 31, Nolito 32, Busquets and a couple of those other guys are the only ones who will be younger than 30. So is it time to start cleaning house, get a new manager, even though I have utmost respect for Del Bosque, and start rebuilding with the likes of Thiago, Coque, even Bellerin, Morata, Vasquez. Um, yeah, I mean, it just it, it definitely does seem like those uh, those accomplishments, those achievements. Um, I mean, that great Spanish uh, reign um, just seems so long ago at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of crazy in, in terms of when you really think about it. Um, and and I think that enough time has been removed to where you probably should start entering in that conversation. Uh, there is certainly a, a, a lot of a lot of respect, I'm sure, towards what Vicente de Bosque has, has been able to uh, to put forth in with this Spain, the Spanish reign. But 
Uh, I think at, at some point I, I'm even worried for his own sake that you know his legacy and what is going to be remembered uh, is going to start then um, you know seeing kind of a, a bell curve uh, towards that um, if it continues down this way because you know it, it's it's much like in terms of uh, FC Barcelona uh, to where there has now become just such an an expectation. Uh, of uh, of performance and results, and, and not really only just the results, but the style of play on the field there. Um, you know, to to really completely just outrun, uh, out dominate then uh, your opposing team to outpass them to death there. Uh, I I think that the the Spanish team needs a, a bit of a, a new identity. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that some of this kind of you know tiki taka type nature that's been adopted you know a, a bit uh, into the national team. Um, you know, it it isn't as as um, nouveau now, and, and it doesn't have some of the elements to where you know teams haven't been planning for that at this point in time. You kind of already know what you are going to expect or, or what to expect then when you're playing uh, against a Spain team uh, in tournaments these days, and and that's certainly not going to uh, um, uh, to Im- improve upon for their for the results here uh, when uh, when it's already known exactly how they're going to, to perform. Uh, there really is kind of a change of guard that does need to take place. Uh, I, I thought that this tournament. You did also see then a, a reliance on Dubesca, not only with the lineup or with the players they took into this tournament. Uh, mm-hmm. Some players like Vitolo, who had a great uh, season in the Liga, uh, who, who didn't even really seem to be under consideration uh, for coming in this tournament. Whereas Pedro, uh, you know, someone who did not have the best of years there with Chelsea, uh, certainly had a drop off, but just kind of seems like it's already expected that Pedro is going to be in that lineup. Uh, I, I think that certainly hurts in, in terms of development of some players when you have that kind of expectation. But even beyond that, with the with the the selection coming into the tournament, I, I thought there was an over reliance on those players. Then uh, for each game, um, I, I think that this match against Italy probably showed its its head there. When when you have such a deep bench as Spain does, uh, I think I would have liked to see just a little bit more tinkering in that match than against Croatia or, or in the late stage of the group um, to to make sure that you have then players fresh. Uh, for these these critical games, and that just didn't seem to be there. Um, you you definitely, if you're if you're a fan of Spain, um, you do have to feel good about you know the likes of of Thiago, uh, the likes of Coque um, there that that are you know kind of waiting in the wings. Uh, but you know if if they're not getting any any playing time whatsoever now at this point in time, that's going to make it for a, a much tr- uh, tougher transition. Um, so I, I, I do think that you know while while the the record was um, again filled with great accomplishments, uh, that maybe a, a changing of the guard is uh, a good point in time now for uh, for Spain. It's important to note, uh, real quickly, jumping in, that Conte has played 22 of his 23 players. The only guy who hasn't played is the third third keeper. Uh, in, in 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 played 22 of his 23 guys in the group stage. Rotated heavily uh, between the three matches. Del Bosque didn't do that, and mm-hmm. uh, I think today it showed. I mean, Italy yeah. from the get go uh, were were do- they were the dominant team. I mean, as we said, this could have been a five nil, six nil. Certainly felt like that. So, uh, not only did he not is he not going beyond his core of, of, of now aged players for selection, but then he's not even rotating within the squad he picked. And that's, um, that's a problem. Yep. Carthy, yeah. Carly, let's stick with you. Talk about France versus Iceland, which is the final uh, upcoming quarterfinal. Uh, no one, well, not no one. Most people didn't predict this outcome. Uh, th- we all predicted the France win over Republic of Ireland. Uh, but let's talk about England versus Iceland <laughs> Uh, where do we, well, let's not, you know, England's out. Let's wrap up the podcast. Let's go home. 
just kidding. We have to, we have to we have to talk about this, don't we? Yeah, we, uh, don't, we don't care about Wales, even though they're a home nation, right? That's that's the attitude of a lot of people right? in the English press. Hopefully, that changes in the next few days. They have a, they have a they have a home nation. They have a domestic club, uh, a national team that's still alive, very much alive mm-hmm. in this Euros, and they're acting as if world's come to an end so well the uh, world has come to an end for england <laughs> brexit uh, right you know? brexit yeah, right. does <laughs> england brexit is, is this, right? exactly the second time england has exited the euros in a week so uh it was actually first of all it was a it was a good game to watch it was a good game to watch there were three goals in the first 20 minutes i know one of them was a howler from uh joe hart but both teams created chances especially in the first half uh but in general given the talent that england has you would have expected them once they went up one goal uh, in the third minute that I really thought that they would run away with this game. But as always with England, <laughs> never that simple. And, and Napoon, you, you, you were right before the tournament. You were concerned about Rooney's role. I tended to think it, w- it would work out. It didn't. Uh, not having Michael Carrick, not having Danny Drinkwater, not having uh, a Mark Noble, Noble not yeah. having one of those types of players in the midfield uh, really hurt. And then when you pull Eric Dyer off at halftime of this match, uh, look, uh, Eisen Lagerbeck, I should point out, and I pointed this out on Twitter all week for those of you who follow me, Lagerbeck ha- has never lost to England in a competitive match. Now, granted, he was managing Sweden when he came up against England those four times, mm-hmm. and Sweden had Henrik Larsson right. and Zlatan and, and all these other great players, and were probably comparable to England. Not, and maybe England, not quite ha- and England had Sven Gorada Eriksson managing, so that uh, also yeah, no, <laughs> And yeah, and I mean, Sweden was, was close to England's level. Iceland is right, not. Right. But mm-hmm. um, he, he had a knack of beating England, right? Or at least getting draws against them at the very least. Uh, and, and so it, it was a tough managerial matchup for them. But uh, what Lagerbeck did in this match is he played two two strikers up front that occupied the two center backs, Cahill mm-hmm. and Smalling, forced Dyer to play further uh, further back as kind of a triangle to bracket those two uh, attacking players that Iceland very surprisingly, given I-, I was expecting Iceland to put 10 men behind the ball, right? And maybe it was right. because of the early goal they came out of that. Uh, but then when it was 1-1, I thought they'd go back into a shell. They didn't. Because that was working, Lagerbeck stuck with that to where Iceland weren't playing that defensively, even though England saw uh, the vast majority of the ball. Um that uh, you didn't have any flexibility. He decided to pull Dyer off and bring Will Sharon instead of Milner. I don't know why Milner didn't get much of a run out in this tournament. Or uh, another defensive midfielder, another guy who could read the game and was match fit and match sharp, unlike Wilshire, who could have played that Dyer role better than he felt Dyer was playing in the first half. And I don't think Dyer was playing too badly. I just think it was the tactic that uh, that Iceland threw out there that Lagerbeck knew he could he could really kind of disrupt England's uh, mat, uh, game plan and have Dyer playing so far, so deep so far deeper than uh the rest of the midfield that Deli Ali and Rooney were having to come back to link up Kane was having to come back and just disrupted the whole English attack um one thing I do want to say is that there are a lot of self-loathing critics in the, in, in, in Britain, in yeah. England, who wanted England to play like Barcelona. They say England has to play like Spain. They have <laughs> to. And in fact, not, not recognizing that Del Bosque uh, won, won those World Cups and, and Euros because he had Javi Alonso in the team. And he had, he had some real kind of guile and some, some, some um, uh, guys who could win the ball and, 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 could, and could play in a different way. Um, 
So England in this tournament had more possession than anyone, even more possession than Spain, completed more passes than anyone, uh, seemed to have more side to side play and, and, and you know, more midfield movement than anyone. And guess what? They were one of the worst teams in the tournament. So maybe mm-hmm. England should go back to playing at their strengths. That's just a consideration. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just going to throw that out there. Maybe uh, the, the, the way England played uh, under Sven Joran Eriksson, which was um, – Erickson said he wanted to bring some style to the team, and he had Lampard and Gerrard in midfield. But then eventually they hit the uh, hit the hit hit the reset button and would push the ball out wide and whip in those crosses. Maybe that's the way England should play because that's their strength. Uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. They were on, as far as this game, they were soundly beaten. Uh, even after halftime, they really didn't create any chances until uh, Rashford came on. I, and again, I don't know why Rashford wasn't brought on ten or fifteen oh, yeah. minutes yeah. earlier. Um, Iceland are, are, are as good as England uh, in terms of their their results in international competition. This is not like Cameroon beating Argentina or Senegal beating France. Some of the other upsets that have been cited in world football. This is England we're talking about. Right. This is a this is a nation that uh, in 2010 uh, finished behind the United States in in a group in the World Cup. This is a nation that finished last in a group that included Costa Rica in the last World Cup. This is a nation who just finished behind Wales in a group in this Euro. Mm -hmm. That's why they Mm -hmm. were playing Iceland and not Northern Ireland like Wales did. This is a nation that picked Andy Carroll as striker for a long time. Yeah, go on. Yeah, right. So this is not not like beating France or beating Argentina or beating Germany. it's a great accomplishment for Iceland, but it's going to take an awful lot more to beat France because France is that much yeah. better than England. Robert, that's such an interesting point that Karthik raises because uh, it actually made me chuckle when he was mentioning it. Because England and the U.S. Miss national team have a similar problem that both both teams are very reactionary in their in their tactics. England tried to become Spain ten years after what Spain was doing was 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 a uh, game changing. The U.S. Men's National Team is doing the same thing. So England is now a possession team at a time when possession is going out of style. So for the longest time, when England was playing the way England plays, which Karthik mentioned, is you know England used to play four four two, the uh, counter attacking style with long balls, the, the kind of style that Man United used to play. The irony is, right now the team that won the Premier League, their own league, played a four four two, played counter attacking football, played a long ball style. And yet the national team, in its same old reactionary way, was 10 years behind and was trying to recreate Spain. So maybe England and Roy Hodgson should have taken the leaf out of the book of Leicester City and and, uh, Claudio Ranieri and played what we always considered a very English style. Yeah, you know, it's interesting hearing some of the talking points after this match and and some of the the angst about who was playing, who should have played the formation – you almost I was sitting there thinking I could take my US men's national team talking points from yeah, last year and exactly. probably just inserted them right here yeah. and it would be Oh, well, hang on, hang on. Where, where's ProRel? England has ProRel, bro. Other than that, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not, not that one that one hits Karthik too close to home. <laughs> please 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 don't use it as a hashtag in the yeah. uh, notes for this one. All right, uh, thank yeah. you. ProRel for USA. Jeez. <laughs> oh, not, not, not my line, kids. Um, no, I, but, but, you know, I, I, it is interesting. And it, it's with this English team, I think a lot of it is self, again, to go off the field, off the pitch. A, a lot of this is this unreasonable stress and pressure on this club. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. what, what is England right now? England is not Argentina. It's not a European Union. Go on. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, and not in Europe. 
Um, but you know, it's a ta- it's a collection of of you know uh, different parts. There's some younger talent yeah. on there that needs to be vetted. There's some new players that have performed well in the league that we don't really know how they're playing internationally. This is their first chance to prove it. We have some older veterans who have underperformed uh, throughout uh, their careers. So you know, this is not. I think really it's it's an it's a attitude adjustment for England, Ed, much in the same way it's an attitude adjustment for the United States. It's a realization of where they are in the world right now, which is not the best soccer nation in the world. They're mm-hmm. not the most innovative. Uh, they're not the most talented. You know, they, if they if the tournaments held in England, then they've got a great leg up on everybody else. But otherwise, um, you know, they, they need to either gamble a little bit. Uh, you know, with some creative, with some tactician as their manager, or they just need to, you know, play it out. Let's see what this younger talent can do. Let's see, you know, how long the Vardy magic runs. You know, let, let's keep these players together for a while longer. Let's not let Wayne Rooney retire quite yet. Yeah. Try some things, and then in 2018, let's see what happens. You should have a better product based on who you have on this team, and based on now, obviously, you have a different manager, but you know, try some things out, and you should have a better product. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it, Gabe? Because uh, as much as we've made fun of England because it's fun to do, this is a very young squad. It was the second youngest squad in the, in the European Championships. Uh, there are a lot of players, that, as Karthik and I, and the, the four of us actually talked about last time, were uh, playing in their first big international tournament. In fact, their first big year in terms of Vardy and all the Tottenham players, all those players, this is the first breakout season for a lot of them. So from that mm-hmm. lens, a lot of these players will learn from what they've experienced in this in this tournament there will be some experience in the world cup if the likes of rooney stick around so the next t- the next manager might actually have a lot of uh, malleable uh, talented pieces to play around with yeah i think there's there's definitely going to be options there i think the the biggest issue for the incoming manager is always to manage expectations mm, uh, I, yeah. I think you know the e- england for for whatever reason right now still has the expectations that uh, that they are a big team, that that they are a powerhouse still in, in European football. And that's certainly not the case. I mean, this is their first – this tournament, uh, the win against Wales was the, the first win um, you know, since uh, since 2012 then uh, against Ukraine. Uh, and, and it's not been – you know, we're not talking about challenging groups that they've been in. Um, you know, through the World Cup then in 2014 and, and now this uh, European Championships here in 2016. Uh, yet those expectations are I, – I could I could count the number of English pundits then that going into this tournament were looking at the players on, on paper and, and, and kind of saying, you know what? We might have a run at the finals for this, hmm. right? And and, right. and it's just – you know, it's, it's – it's, 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 a little bit i mean it's fun from the outside you know looking in on this because again the, you know the, the recent evidence hasn't supported any of those kind of, of thoughts being there uh, i want to jump in just for a second gabe continue sure. but um the the funny thing is that that had not been the case that 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 mantra of oh we can win this we can win this had been uh, a, a a constant thing 2004 euros 2006 world cup 2010 world cup the 2012 euros and 2014 mm. world cup were met with more mature levels of expectation hey mm-hmm. england isn't quite at that elite level then uh and gabe's making a great point about what we read before the tournament. then it started all back up again for this yeah. tournament oh look at this team we can win it all these other teams are weaker which was true italy's weaker germany's weaker etc on paper at least but uh continue i mean i just don't understand no, that's good. why that's good. that uh, happened this time that yeah. is a good point. Yeah, I mean, it was it did show the taper off. I mean, I think after kind of the you know the the, the generation there to where you you started moving 
moving away from the draw cards uh, at, at that point in time, you, you did see maybe a, maybe a little bit of kind of bringing back down to earth. But I would still say that, that there was still this expectation uh, of, of high performances that, that you know, just weren't weren't shown on paper outside of outside of uh, qualifications to where they seemed to, to do great in in qualification stages uh, as we saw leading up to this European championships uh, and, and then when it comes to the actual tournaments uh, you know we, we kind of see it in the England that we've we've seen over the over the past cycles uh, I, I think looking at you know in terms of any kind of potential manager um, I, I think it would even be best for England if they're not necessarily getting some kind of high profile international type manager. Uh, coming in, I mean, I think this is this definitely needs to be someone who brings a little bit more, um, I, I think, tactical agility mm-hmm. uh, to the repertoire than than what Roy Hodgson had. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be an English name. Uh, don't get me wrong there, or, or a British name at that. Uh, but I but I don't think that they need to go for a a player or a, a manager then uh, that has a, a, a kind of name and a kind of profile. That all of a sudden warrants respect. I think if anything, England really does need to kind of uh, build up organically, kind of get this element of you know the world's against us, we're the underdogs through the situation. H- have somebody that can bring them in and, and say you know the people that are in this room right now, we're going to fight for each other and and no one else. And I think that kind of dynamic, if you can get that early on uh, with this squad and get them the 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 respect and the admiration from the players, because I think that's even been a bit. A bit missing here, um, uh, as of recent, with some of the team selections and, and, and picks. I think if you get that, you get the 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 players on board first, get the support that I think is going to have to to come over some time because right now there is probably after this kind of fallout where the expectations did rise a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I think tomorrow's papers are just going to be brutal um, on the players, on the team as a whole, the FA. There's going to be a lot of questions asked, and and again, I just think that you need to 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 take then a one to two year approach through the, this qualification stage for world cup uh, and just overall trying to build this slowly uh, rather than thinking this is going to be a, a, a quick thin recovery job here from, from Hodgson. Karthik, so you, you heard it Sorry, here first folks, Gabe Smith or Gabe goes with uh, Bob Bradley for you. For <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Karthik outside of Bob Bradley, obviously the obvious choice is Tim Sherwood, but uh, outside of Tim Sherwood, uh, I guess so. It, it realistically, I think of two managers that fit the bill. The very good criteria that Gabe elucidated. One would be Laurent Blanc. I think he would fit the bill. But the bigger one for me, and I think this is exactly who England should be going for, Manuel Pellegrini. So England uh, has once again their media has 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 created this 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 phenomenon because Gabe made a very good point. Uh, this tournament prior to this tournament, we were hearing the same things we heard in 2006 before the World Cup and and 2010 before the World Cup. Now they had had managed not to do that in 2012 and the team played pretty well in that Euro uh, in spite of losing in, in penalties to Italy. I think they played well mm-hmm. in, in that tournament. Maybe the results weren't there, but they played well. 2014 World Cup was a disaster, but people didn't have high expectations for them. So they put this pressure again on on, on the team, and we saw it today, right? We saw guys are scared of making mistakes. Coaches yeah. uh, are scared. Uh, Hodgson and, and Gary Neville uh, very uh, openly, uh, it, it appeared, were talking about putting Mar- Marcus Rashford in the game in the 70th minute, and they didn't put him in until the 85th. Right. Guess what? 
Iceland were the better team. Iceland, I think, controlled this match. Iceland may not have been the better team and controlled this match if that change had been made in the 70th mm-hmm. minute because they were beginning to tire. And uh, and to mention the two strikers that they were they were uh, occupying the third of uh, the that, that midfielder and it was Wilshire. He got beat a couple times in the second half, right? Um, had had that Rashford change been made earlier, maybe then uh, uh, the one of those strikers is tucking back and and they they lose their shape and they lose their ability to counter. Um, so that's all comes from the pressure. So this next coach that whoever it is, is going to have to deal with that. And, um, you're going to want someone with some experience. You're going to want someone with an even hand, a steady hand. Mm-hmm. That's why a guy like Pellegrini would be great. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Pellegrini is going to want the pressure of the England job though. Um, the Chile job uh, look, was open a few months ago, and they, PZ came in. Now it's one Copa America, repeating what Sampoli did. So uh, his native Chile is not available. Right. Um, I, I don't think Sam Allardyce is going to consider this job. I don't think um, – I, I, well, Allardyce is really the only high-level English manager in the Premier League, in my opinion. So, uh, Or Eddie Howe, right? I don't think Eddie Howe is going to consider this job yeah. yet. I don't think the FA wants an Eddie Howe. They want someone who's a name. So they might be stuck. If they're going to go England, they um, they might be stuck unless they revisit what happened ten years ago. Uh, now and they uh, when they hired Steve McLaren, the guy that uh, really could have been the, the the manager was Martin O'Neill. But I don't think Martin O'Neill will leave Republic of Ireland. Look, they right. were as good as England in this tournament. Uh, he he um um he, I and, and oh, wait, part of Roy, Roy Keane then. <laughs> well, I, lo- I love Martin O'Neill's line that uh, with Roy Keane. Uh, remember, they both are Brian Clough to Suffles. We right. have bad cop and badder cop. There's <laughs> no good cop for these poor players. Um, no, but it, O'Neill, I think, is is too outspoken yeah. for um, for England and the way the the way the FA operates. It's why the uh, the Ireland job has worked out much better for him, Republic of Ireland job. And he's been able to bring in a guy like Roy Keane. I don't think he'd be able to bring in a nope. Roy Keane equivalent player with a guy <laughs> with the FA's, the way the FA governs himself in England. So, um, you know, they'll ask him to take Southgate or, or Pierce or someone who's a rah-rah guy rather mm-hmm. than uh, a guy like Roy Keane who's going to stick it to the players. And, so then, Cardi, who, uh, who do you think will take over? I don't know. I'm just yeah. thinking out loud. And I, I'm Alan Pardew, yeah. I guess, is the guy. Oh! Oh, <laughs> right. He's wow. an English manager and he has all these attacking ideas. Or maybe it's uh, maybe Ari makes a return. I look Martinez. Were, Martinez is a possibility. He's he um, look, Roberto Martinez's analysis and, and our colleague, the gaffer, has nailed this. Roberto Martinez's a- analysis on ESPN is so good during these tournaments, except yeah. when it concerns England. And he's always praised England as recently as yesterday, saying, I don't understand all the criticism of England. I think they've been one of the best teams in this tournament. Mm. I think he's always had in the back of mm. his mind to get that job. So maybe it's him. Uh, maybe it's uh, uh, someone outside the box. The FA has got to really think about this. And whether or not they want to acknowledge it, the fact that Wales is right now better than England with Chris Coleman as their manager, a guy who um, has really kind of tactically figured things out. The, the the reality of how well Northern Ireland has done in the last few years with Michael O'Neill, who I think will probably move on after this tournament. Maybe Northern Ireland will slip back to their natural level because of that. Uh, and because Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane have done such a fantastic job with the Republic of Ireland, two people that England would not hire um, because of personality clashes, quite frankly. 
I, I, maybe they rethink their approach and they and they go for a guy like an Allardyce mm. and, and a guy who's going to be uh, hard nosed and, and and talk back in the press and, and do those sorts of things. But I just don't think they will. I think they're going to try and find uh, someone who who's happy to be in the job, who's English, and that's probably going to be a guy like Pardew. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to have to revisit that as we go along because that, that really is a whole can of worms. And I think the, we are the, the jokes write themselves at that point. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. Especially with Pardew <laughs> well, comes in. Could it, could it be, guys, just one last thought? Yeah. Could it be end up being Stuart Pierce or Garrett Southgate, these loyal uh, yeah. England servants? And they just they just take the caretaker for now. And they here's the scenario, uh, Nipun. You may not want to hear this or you may want to hear this. Uh, Jose Mourinho flames out at Manchester United, and after mm-hmm. the 2018 World Cup, he's there, uh, and that that's that's uh, an, an easy appointment for them, and and they can just get by with a caretaker who's not a high-profile manager now, qualify for 2018, you know, bomb out of that tournament like they bomb out of every other tournament, <laughs> then get Jose, who loves English football and who's run out of clubs to manage. Maybe that's what ends up happening, and it works well, out for them. Well, there's so a couple of thoughts. First of all, no doubt that Mourinho will burn out at United by 2018. I don't think there's a question about that. That's definitely <laughs> happening. Uh, but the the second part of it is actually true. We know Mourinho has coveted that England job before. I know he said no to it once, but I think um, that that is doable. But the second part of that, Karthik, I don't think will happen. I don't think the FA is in a position to let things slide and let Southgate take over uh, and let um, – because, because the, I think even the FA, for as uh, nincompoopish they are, they realize they're sitting on a on a gold mine here with some of these players, and they need a top level manager. And if they don't ha- hire someone like Manuel Pellegrini, who I think would be perfect for this job, it will be another example of the stubbornness and the idiocy of the FA. So uh, we should leave this conversation. Well, Ten years ago, they hired Steve McLaren mm-hmm. over. Uh, Martin O'Neill, because they right. wanted a guy who was a company man. Right. And uh, you see uh, what O'Neill can do. Well, you've seen what he's done with the Republic of Ireland. They're as good mm-hmm. as England right now. So um, that, that's um, that, that they, that's the way they think, unfortunately. Yeah. True. So, gentlemen uh, and listeners, we will be back a week from today, or actually on Sunday, uh, when the all the quarterfinal games have wrapped up, and we'll be talking about each one of those games, as well as uh, looking ahead to the semifinals of the European Championships. So on behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk, on behalf of Robert Hay, Gabe Smith, and myself, Nipun Chopra, Karthik. Unless you're a Three Lions lover, or you're Roy Hodgson, or you're Gary Neville, you're enjoying your football tonight. (laughs) Or you're Argentina, or you're Leo Messi. Messi. (laughs) I think this has become my favorite part of the podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 